yet another innovative format from LSE Law, innovative from a LSE Law point of view, but not from a British point of view, because there's a very well-known series of programs, one on radio called Any Questions and another on TV called Question Time, and uh, they're both run by BBC, and we've decided to model this event. So it's lovely to see so many of you here to a question of law. Uh, Our names are probably at the back, and indeed... With the exception of myself, lovely pictures. Uh, and I'm playing the role of uh, David Dimbleby, that rather old personage who runs Question Time. My name is, in fact, Connor Geerty. And I have here Chiloka, whom you can see, Biani, Center for the Study of Human Rights, UN Special Rapporteur, Internally Displaced Persons, uh, involved in work in the African Union, and also, interestingly, uh, advising the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. He's been on the phone a lot recently, I imagine, Chiloka. Yes. Anyway, yes, uh, one, of a, one of a group, of which there are other East uh, LSE members. So as Chiloka teaches international law here in various shapes. Uh, Julia is next on my list here, Pro-Director of Research, which means that Julia is the person who's responsible for the development of a kind of research uh, culture and uh, in uh, all of LSE, uh, not just law. And Julia's a specialist in regulation and has written a number of books and articles on regulation and I think was actually before some sort of House of Commons committee. Last week. Last week, giving evidence on deregulation. Is an expert on regulation also an expert on deregulation? Absolutely. You turn your hand to anything. So that's Julia. Emily, to my right, uh, head of department, law, and an author of a very well received and important book, Medical Law, and also uh, the author of a very interesting uh, book with John Kuhn called Debating Euthanasia, which has been published recently and has got a real involvement in the whole area of ethics related to medical law, uh, on the BMA Ethics Committee still, Emily? Yeah. And also now, I think, Deputy Chair... No. Ex-Deputy Chair. Uh, formerly Deputy Chair of the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. Still on it or off it completely? No. Off it completely. So obviously somebody who's in the recent past been involved in the analysis of what policy should be on these uh, incredibly tricky ethical Areas, And then over on my left is Peter, Peter Ramsey, uh, who I seem to remember having taught at King's College, unbelievably. Do you remember? You say you were at UCL, but I've had a feeling for years you were at King's. And Peter's, Peter, Peter's written a, a new, I think still called a new book last year or the year before, The Insecurity State, is that right? So hopefully we'll have a chance to develop some of the ideas there, because Peter's take on current events and affairs is informed by a deep understanding of his subject and is a take which is not necessarily the one that is taken by others, which is the definition, in my opinion, of a good academic. So what we've got are uh, a number of questions that have come on Twitter. Some of you may be unfamiliar with what Twitter is. I imagine there is behind me a hashtag. Bradley, is there a hashtag? If you want to type in superb introduction by Dimbleby, <laughs> do it and put a hashtag. No, Bradley? I, I'm being advised you shouldn't do that. Uh, you might want to ask a question via Twitter, 
if you couldn't be bothered to put your hand up. <laughs> and Bradley may decide that it's worth asking. Bradley is here. Bradley Morrow is the person behind all these amazing LSE events, innovative to the core. And Bradley is about to ask the first question via Twitter. And then we'll go to you guys and we'll get the panel's views. And I may have to rule some out of order. A question along the lines of what is on the exam in medical law and ethics will not be permitted (laughs) to be answered. Uh, But we hope to have a range of views on a variety of subjects. Bradley, Twitter guru, first question for the panel, please. The first question is from... Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce the username, um, at Mally Wynn, I believe. And the question is, in cases of great public interest, should trials be televised? I think on the telly they now repeat it, don't they? In cases of great public interest... I've forgotten it. Uh, Should trials be televised? That was an effort of humour, sorry. Uh, So let's have the panel's views on that. We're going to take them one at a time because the conceit is that they're reacting to these questions. But some of you may not have views. I don't know. Uh, Peter, do you have a view on it? Emily, do you have a view on it? I have a view on it. My views are formed by international human rights law, which requires in the context of a right to a fair trial that the trial must actually be public. And the only exception is as regards juveniles. for reasons of protection. And apart from that, of course, international human rights law uh, also requires freedom uh, of information, the the right to receive and impart information, uh, which are important aspects. And I think from the 1990s, we have seen the ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda televised uh, trials. The International Criminal Court also does the same thing. And only last week, uh, the South African High Court um, actually did decide that the trial of Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner, uh, who is being prosecuted in connection with the death of uh, uh, his former fiancé, should be televised with exceptions as regards the identity of witnesses, i.e. those witnesses who did not want to be identified, um, and special arrangements made um, you know, in that regard. So I actually think that uh, modern practice and international human rights law uh, justify a huge public interest uh, in having trials uh, televised. We're just, being, we're just being advised by some of the uh, people here at the back that we're not hearing it. I think that possibly is because you weren't close enough to the microphone, Shiloka. It's not oh, effective. Wasn't okay. that, actually. It wasn't that. There's no point in having televised trials if people can hear nothing. <laughs> so let's just actually, see, Shiloka. So. The solution of turning it on has not worked. Has this one worked? I think so. Well, basically... Can you hear me on this? Yeah, but it's now too late. I'm it's going too to late, route. yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, putting it into a 140-character tweet, broadly in favour, as long as people who don't want it, it doesn't happen to them, look at South Africa, international human rights law, slash, hashtag, Shiloka BNE. Emily? I don't have a definitive view one way or the other, but the thing that really, really worries me about this is the idea of um, trials <laughs> as entertainment and a spectacle. And... Um, when people's lives are at stake, uh, both the defendant and in whatever sort of case there might be victims, it seems to me that it isn't entertainment and there's a very serious job to do in the courtroom and it's kind of worrying because we all enjoy courtroom dramas but it's, it's not the same thing, it's not a spectacle. So I think I have some quite serious concerns about um, trials as entertainment. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to the group on this. We can't go to the tweeter, but we'll go to the group in a minute. Uh, Peter, Julia, views on this? And make sure we get close to the microphone, please. 
You can probably hear me anyway, but I'll talk close to the microphone. Um, I think I agree with Emily. I'm in favour of open justice, but, uh, but if it's going to be on television, I think it should be boring. Uh, my worry would be that it would get too interesting and too entertaining. As long as it was fairly dull, like watching Parliament or something like that, uh, I think that would be OK, you know, because, I mean, courtrooms aren't terribly exciting places to be, and uh, especially in relation to criminal law, I think that's quite a good thing because the, uh, uh, one of the functions, I think, or good things that uh, law can do is to take the passion out of it. Uh, and to reduce it down to what happened, who did what, why, uh, and take all the passion out of it, or a lot of the passion out of it. And as students here will know, uh, that's what we do. You know, we, we, you know, criminal law, we take all these fascinating, amazing, extraordinary things that people do and reduce it down to its kind of bare bones uh, in order to try to make sense of it. So uh, if it was boring, I could, I could live with it, or dull, or just something that if you were really serious, uh, I could live with it. One more thing. Um, it will be. I, I, it, I fear that what will happen is we'll get open justice in the form of televised trials, in which the evidence which is used to convict uh, the defendant may well be secret on grounds of national security, uh, and that would be a uh, that would not. Um, there are ways of appearing to be open while, in fact, the system becomes more and more uh, closed in its legal terms. And we just had a, uh, uh, an appeal rejected of somebody who was convicted under those circumstances mm. of murder. And those, that worries me a great deal more in terms of whether justice is open than whether or not the trials are televised. Good point. Good point. Uh, um, I think, to be honest, the, I remember similar debates years and years and years ago about whether Parliament should be televised. And as fact, as Peter said, actually, it is now televised and really no, I don't know how many people watch it, but it's, it's probably just less dramatic than people think. In a way, to have the trials televised may be, may be informative, because it's not like courtroom drama. It's not, you know, people prowling around and coming out with a key piece of evidence right at the end to kind of clinch the case. You know, it's very um, methodical um, interrogation of a series of facts, but also a series of witnesses. And here, I think, one does need to be careful, because there have been, as to the identity of witnesses um, and perhaps the way that they are interrogated uh, and how that is then portrayed and becomes very public. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a, there's a need for, for, for the courts and for law to be accountable to those on whose behalf it, it is purporting to serve. Um, trials are already public. Uh, we have public inquiries. We have uh, Leveson Inquiry, for example, is public. So we have a range of things which occur in the public space already. Um, and it strikes me that televising trials wouldn't actually be a, a qualitative leap uh, in that regard. Mm. Right, thank you. Well, uh, as I put baby boomers on trial in this room on Friday, I can hardly argue against trials as entertainment. But, of course, as a mechanism for informing and entertaining at the same time, it's fantastic. The point is whether or not we want a real trial with somebody likely to go to jail at the end of it uh, as a necessary part of that. Do members of the audience have a view on this? Some of the older people like me can remember O.J. Simpson, which is another counterpoint, and set it back a long way here. Uh, there's a lady at the front who's had her hand firmly up. Can we get a microphone over? Thank you very much. You can say who you are if you want, or you can just ask a question or give an opinion. Hello. Um, I was just wondering, to those in favour of televising trials, whether you think the actual setup of the television cameras would have an impact? Because when you're in the public gallery, you can see the range of expressions on the faces, and do you think how it's portrayed 
through television could change the public opinion of the trial and things like that as factors. Thanks. Are you a student? No, uh, I'm in sixth form. Sixth form, very good. Well, thank you very much for that excellent kind of observation, quasi-question about the, the structure of it. Might bear on your point, The Peter, camera always lies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> about, you'd have the camera in the sort of anteroom with doors <laughs> closed in front, wouldn't you? It should be like you get lecture capture cameras, you know, up there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Any other comments or observations? Right, let's, uh, let's look for a question. Broadly, how many of your hands up would actually televise trials? Let's see. And who wouldn't? Interesting. The majority, substantial majority, wouldn't televise. There was talk about it in this country, and O.J. Simpson did finish it. Uh, there was no elite hunger for it. However, I think the Supreme Court is occasionally televised, isn't it? And it certainly fits Peter's desire to be <laughs> unbelievably boring. Uh, I think it's mainly a person's behind with words that are barely heard and persons who look asleep in front, isn't it? For lawyers yeah. and anorats. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any other questions on any other topic? We've got that lady. Do we have any other so I can know who's interested? in asking a question a bit later. We've got a, a lady here, but we'll take you, madam, perhaps say who you are and a question on law to the audience, please. Um, a woman for justice and peace in Sri Lanka. The oppressed people have no representation at the UN, which was formed 60, 70 years ago when interstate conflicts were the problems for us. Now <laughs> the interstate conflicts have gone down and intrastate conflicts have gone up. And there is no, the uh, oppressed people have no representation. In 65 years, Sri Lanka, the oppressed uh, ethnic minorities, uh, this is going to go on forever because Sri Lanka is in a geopolitically strategic location and it is never taken up at a security council and UNHRC, very feeble watered down resolutions going on all the time to kill time. And the successive governments of Sri Lanka have been uh, appointing, appointing commissions whenever it is questioned at the UN for five or six decades, so, and now this president hasn't released 18 reports in the last 80 years. This is going to go on. They, they are lying and lying at Geneva and right. Washington. Can How I, can we uh, right. get can our I, justice? Can I just, on behalf of people, ask you, are you saying the oppressed people? Is that right? Are you talking about a specific oppressed people? You're talking about Tamil people. Tamils and Muslims, but, Right. But your, your point passionately put, is a general one, as I understand it, because I want to get the panel to react to this. It's very, very topical about how the international system does not protect communities within countries who do not feel an identity with the governing community. Is that what you're sort of saying? Uh, and what can be done about it? So it's in a way, is it the case? And secondly, what can be done about it? I think it's unavoidably your question with a microphone that will be close to your mouth and works, because it seems to me right up your street, Chiloka. Thank you very much. Well, uh, thank you very much for the question, and I'll prefer my answer by saying that I did have uh, an official mission to Sri Lanka in November, um, and I went the north of the country. Um, I visited uh, many displaced persons. Uh, it was my second visit to Sri Lanka. The first time I went was in 96, 97, and I went there to look into constitutional arrangements at the time when a federal structure was being proposed uh, between um, the north and, of course, the, um, the mainland. Um, and the reason for, I think, being cautious is that my report will go to the Human Rights Council in, in June. So 
I would not say anything that directly bears on that report. However, my observations on your question are as follows. Because of the brutality of the conflict and allegations of war crimes and massive violations of human rights that took place uh, in Sri Lanka around 2008 and 2009, uh, the UN launched uh, a lessons learned report and an inquiry that showed precisely what had gone wrong and the fact that human rights were, I think, sacrificed on the altar of political expediency and that the UN should never do that again. Um, And I think that one of the more important things that has happened uh, during the current session of the Human Rights Council uh, is a resolution um, supporting the creation of a commission of inquiry uh, in war crimes uh, during the time uh, when the war uh, was taking place. Uh, And we wait and see whether that resolution uh, will be adopted. And in the context of my own mission, of course, I'm a voice for the oppressed and for the suffering people. I, the people I met uh, in the North uh, told me of their problems, their issues, and I think that I can say that one of the most gripping moments was when I met a group of 20 women with photographs of their children and husbands, and when I walked in the room, they were all silent. And then they began to speak and say, please help us find our children and husbands, because these were surrendered to the military. Uh, at the time when the population was crossing over from government-held areas, uh, from rebel-held areas into government areas. And that's one of the things that I pressed um, you know, with the government. Um, the question of IDPs in the north, uh, the Muslims as well uh, in the east, uh, it's quite clear that those issues need uh, resolving and tackling. Thank you. But sure, can I pursue it in a way? I heard there a remark about all these reports and all these commissions and all these inquiries... And kind of, I know you can't do much else, but you've got the report coming up, and there's going to be another report before the Commission on this, and a report on that, lessons learnt, and so on. The impression I got from the question was, there's just this blizzard of red tape around brutality, and the purpose of it is to cover it up. Do you think your reports make any difference? They actually do make a huge difference. The UN report on lessons learnt, I think, covered in great detail. Uh, the nature of the violations of human rights um, within Sri Lanka and reported that. The visit by the High Commissioner and her report to the Human Rights Council this week also disclosed in great detail the nature and extent of violations. So I think that the first thing, of course, is fact-finding, which then leads to evidence and then which leads to investigations about culpability uh, and complicity in those crimes. And I think that's where the debate is going at this point in time. So I think that they actually do have a use, but it does take quite some time to get the oils of uh, the wheels of uh, uh, international human rights mechanisms and international criminal justice going. Uh, But eventually, I think we'll get there. Just one last one before we go to the panel on this. Michael Kirby's report on North Korea is terrifying. Will that produce any prosecution of any leadership in North Korea, or will China hereafter protect that place from accountability? I think the recommendation by Michael Kirby is actually uh, to prosecute people, some of them at the highest levels uh, in North Korea, for reasons of complicity, for violations of human rights. Uh, and I think that what would be awaited now is for the UN to actually set up a mechanism yeah. you know, to do that. And the Security Council doesn't have to set that up. Uh, it may be set up by the Human Rights Council. It may be set up on an ad hoc basis. Yeah. So, possibly. Uh, I'm in the hands of colleagues. Emily? Yeah. 
Peter? Look, I'm not an international lawyer at all. Uh, And because I'm not, maybe I can make some contribution from the other (laughs) side. It struck me as amazing the esteem in which the United Nations is held. I'm always astonished at the highest, especially amongst young lawyers and uh, uh, and people of a humanitarian cast of mind, um, because they... Uh, it's as if the organisation is the last hope and I suppose I can see why because it's the locus of authority that stands above local conflicts above nation states above all the grim uh, uh, conflicts that people are involved in at that level and, and so you might think if you were from a uh, you were the, uh, a partisan of a particular cause uh, that had been crushed by a state that that would be a place uh, where you might look to for hope but at its core is the Security Council which is a blatantly political body. There are the five most powerful states on Earth, uh, the nuclear-armed states. They're not the only nuclear-armed states now, but they were originally. And that's what decides, ultimately. Uh, And so uh, this is, at its root, a highly conflictual political uh, body. And uh, there was a a criminal offence passed uh, under one of the terrorism acts in Britain uh, called the preparation of terrorism uh, offence is now the offence which most people who are convicted of terrorism offences are convicted of in Britain. And when I went to look at the parliamentary debate about this offence, you know, what had been said about Parliament when it was enacted, it just wasn't there. There was nothing said. I thought, why was this? And I discovered that it was because it was in a Security Council resolution that member states should pass such a law. And so it had been passed. There was no, nothing between the Security Council resolution and it becoming enacted in UK law. That's the authority of the, of the Security Council. Uh, and yet, uh, to whom it's accountable exactly, what sort of an organisation it is. And so I think, in a very broad answer to your question, that's the difficulty for anybody who's looking there. Um, its agendas are set uh, in, in Western uh, capitals and perhaps Western universities and, and Western think tanks. And uh, that's uh, the, the interests that will be picked up and worried about and concerned about will in some way reflect that. Julia? I'm not an international lawyer either, but I very firmly view that most of law is politics. So um, to me, the the extent to which any of these reports gain traction has much more to do with the geopolitical power balance and uh, than it does to do with um, processes. I'd like to say otherwise, and I'd like to have faith in these institutions. And I seem to—I read somewhere I think that the UN is the single biggest employer of LSE graduates. So uh, didn't want to do down the careers here. Um, so you know, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep working, keep going there. Um, but as but as Peter said, at the heart, it is a highly politicised body. You have a geopolitical balance in, enacted completely within the Security Council. You see the uh, you see the tensions there. You see the stalemate. Uh, that therefore arises. So I'm afraid I'm uh, much less uh, optimistic than Chiloka, though obviously I'm deeply respectful of the work that, um, that people do to try and change. Thanks. And of course we see too uh, a regional rather than international body, the European uh, Convention on Human Rights Police by the Council of Europe having a crisis at the moment, mm-hmm. which is that one of its countries, and the requirement for membership is a dedication to and commitment to uh, human rights, has invaded another of its countries. And uh, this has happened before. The same country invaded another place called Georgia. And they all belong to the Council of Europe. And they all subscribe to the European Court of Human Rights. And nobody seems to think this is at all inconsistent. And so as long as they have fair processes for pension applicants in Vladivostok, it'll be fine. 
they can bombard Chechnya and they can invade countries and nobody seems to raise any point about it. Now, this raises a more general issue which is about the integrity of law. I mean, this is what I hear, you know. And, of course, the United Nations is primarily a political body, but the European Convention on Human Rights is supposed to have a legal implication. But there's no mechanism, and wouldn't it be hilarious what the response would be, if Georgia sought an injuncting order against uh, Russia as the troops arrived in Sevastopol. You only have to articulate it like that to see how unreal is the enforcement of law in this field. But maybe there's too many sceptics. Human rights idealists, students who want a job in the UN, are you with Biani here or are you with <laughs> Ramsey? What do we think? Any comments? Any supporters of Chiloka Biani here? Not a soul. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, a fine person at the back. It must be Mrs. Biani. Do you want to? Can you get a microphone up? It's wonderful of you to come all this way to support your husband. No, it's not. You're a person with an independent point of view. Excellent. Um, Chiloka Biani teaches me. Um, ah, you're looking. <laughs> it's Liberty Bridge looking for a good mark. Well, we'll, we'll listen to you, notwithstanding that. Yeah, no, I just think the work that he does is really important, and unless we have some kind of basis knowledge to like build on, we're never going to get anywhere. So, that, like, small steps is still really important to take. Thank you very much. Any other comments on this point? Have you got an answer, Chiloka, to is Peter? Is, it a bit, is there somebody down here? Yeah. I'm really sorry. L- lady at the front. And then, Chilok, I will ask you before we go to the next question to respond. I think, like, one of the most important things about all these reports is just the culture that it creates of accountability and just expectation that someone's going to come in afterwards. Because I think maybe on the individual level, if you know that your country, you can do whatever you want, no, nothing's ever going to happen, you know, you're, you will do whatever you want. But if you think there's maybe a slight chance and there's, like, a few more reports and people are really going to be held accountable, that I think that's what can really stop people doing things. Even if maybe nothing gets done in the very, very end, we don't directly see exactly the right people in prison or whatever, I think still you need that accountability. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. And the accountability of the money markets, that might be worrying President Putin more than resolutions of the Council of Europe at the moment. Uh, Chiloka, can we address Peter's, and to some extent my sceptical points, before we go to the next question? Yes. Thank you. I mean, Peter Julius, all law, I think, is inherently political. Um, and if you take the UN and the Security Council, the Security Council actually doesn't come into the picture here, um, other than when it has to refer a case to the International Criminal Court in relation to a state which is not a party, uh, you know, the room statute. But when it does so, um, there's voting between the five permanent members of the Security Council, as we all know, and they must owe uh, a vote uh, affirmatively. And in a sense, the veto was the price for the participation of the Soviet Union in the UN uh, after the Second World War. Otherwise, the Soviet Union would have stayed out of it. And the whole point behind it is to maintain a balance of political power between the five permanent members of the Security Council. So it's inherently uh, political. Uh, And in movement where each one of those powers thinks that the UN is being used against it or against its strategic interests, who obviously veto it. But let's leave the Security Council aside and actually deal with um, some of the special procedures of the Human Rights Council uh, to which my mandate uh, does belong. Uh, And there's a perception sometimes that they're actually feeble and weak, Um, but they're very agile. They are quick to respond, and you actually have face-to-face meetings with government officials. So the guarantees, the understandings that I got from uh, the government of Sri Lanka in terms of what they should do and my own 
advocacy in terms of where the action should go. Um, as regards people in the north, I also spoke to the military, um, the military commanders in the north. You look at them in the eye, you discuss these issues, and they do make some concessions, and they do admit where they actually made mistakes. And I think that level of dialogue is outside the uh, public sphere. The reports do not display what actually goes on. Um, and, of course, they did say that they would welcome my visit back. They also say they would welcome other mandates to go. Uh, you know, for example, the working group on forced disappearances, given the large number of persons who have disappeared uh, during the, uh, the armed conflict. And it is now, I think, for the Human Rights Council uh, you know, to pass that resolution. And I take Julia's point about geopolitics, because you've got Australia, on the one hand, clearly uh, supporting the Sri Lankan government, and also opposing measures that are aimed at establishing individual criminal responsibility. At the same time, you also have India, a powerful neighbor, pushing and saying you've got to do this. Uh, and the way in which those geopolitics play out, um, I think we'll see in the, um, in the Human Rights Council. The composition also has changed. You have China and Russia. You have the UK and France and the US. So in effect, you've got some of the cold war uh, power politics being played out uh, within the Human Rights Council. And one just hopes that you know, at the end of the day, uh, a resolution will be adopted, uh, setting up a commission of inquiry. But even when that is established, it <laughs> remains for the state whether it will grant that commission uh, permission to visit the country. You know, the commission in Syria, for example, has been blocked and hasn't gone anywhere uh, in Syria. So there still has to be some diplomacy, um, you know, to get the country to actually consent uh, to those processes. Uh, and it takes, of course, power politics. It takes uh, a whole lot of uh, individual interests. But above all, uh, I think one has in mind the suffering of the people that you see and the fact that for them, uh, in my case, they said you're the first international person who has come here to visit us uh, since the end of the war. And that was of huge satisfaction to them, simply to relay their issues and to know that those issues would be relayed, not just to the government, uh, but also to the international system. Good. Uh, Peter, a last word before we go to the next round, I think. I take your point, and uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to do down the work that Chaloka does, nor would I want to do it. Um, uh, so I think it's not that if I was in a situation like many of the people that uh, Chaloka works with, the UN is one of the places you'd have to go. If you want to get anything practical done, then the UN is one of the places you have to go. So I, I, that's, uh, the, that's the thing that people probably should do. My point is that here we are in a university when we're thinking about this as a solution, I think there should be more consciousness of the inherent limits of those organisations and, and, and when we're thinking about it we shouldn't just say, oh well, the UN's there, we should be thinking, why is it that the UN systematically fails to solve these problems? What, what, is it something in the structure of it? Those are the kind of questions we should be raising. Thanks, thanks Peter. Uh, we have a lot of tweets that will have come in but I, I know you wanted to ask a question, you did want to ask a question, didn't you? Do you still want to ask a question? And do we have anybody else who'd like to ask a question? We might have some other people. Try and catch my eye a little later. But the next question from you, madam. Uh, should men involved in sexual assault cases who are being prosecuted be remained like, anonymous until like, proven guilty? Thank you very much. So men, I presume we mean charged with serious sexual offences, should they remain anonymous until proved guilty if they are proved guilty. 
The point being that if they're acquitted, they're therefore nobody knows they were charged, etc. Right? And there's been a lot of high-profile examples. You're thinking about recent cases. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be very disappointed. Sure. <laughs> the Coronation Street guy, and, and so people like... Uh, uh, so it's not just rape, it can be a variety of sexual offences. Peter, I think it's right yeah. up your street, actually, if you could lead on this one. Nobody should be... But as a rule, no-one should be anonymous in a criminal trial who's, who's, uh, 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 who's, a, who's complaining, a victim, a witness, a defendant, no-one. Uh, this is the, uh, the state's coercive uh, machinery uh, in action... And uh, it, we discussed open justice in relation to televising, trivial next to the openness of who is being accused, about who is being accused of what and who is doing the accusing. Thanks. I think we could have a view from Emily uh, on this. Uh, it's sort of an ethical issue, in a way. Well, it sort of is. Obviously, it's an ethical issue, but there are clearly arguments on both sides. I mean, I think... Um, I'm not, I'm not a criminal lawyer and I'm not clear that um, I can resolve which are the strongest in every case. I completely take Peter's point that justice uh, should be open and I think that probably wins the day that um, we have an open system of criminal trials. We don't have trials behind closed doors. But on the other hand, it can uh, cause tremendous damage, obviously, to someone's life if they're uh, accused of something. On, um, we know that um, just making an accusation can, can be hugely problematic. Uh, obviously, that happens in relation to teachers who are accused of, um, of, of various things and are suspended and um, are very hard to get their lives back on track if they're subsequently found to have been innocent. But I think, on balance, uh, open justice is a really, really important value. Thanks. Uh, Judith? I will come in, actually, but not yeah. on... Um, what happened. It's quite interesting in the regulatory sphere... Okay, because it, you have got criminal, you have got uh, actions being taken against people. And up until recently, banks and financial institutions, um, proceedings could be instituted against them, but in private. And a recent change in the law was to actually have a notification. It would be public, actually, when proceedings were being taken against them. It was a huge kick-up from the city um, against a violation of some kind of notion of a corporate right, that they shouldn't be allowed, uh, that there shouldn't be the same... Uh, level of transparency actually as, as it applies in the, in the criminal system. So I think it's quite interesting that actually we do have these little parallel systems of law um, operating. So we tend to focus on the, the main stuff, the stuff that happens in court, you know, the litigation, that's where it's act. And that's kind of the kind of accident and emergency room, really, of, of law. There's a whole pile of stuff that goes on uh, elsewhere that doesn't get the same kind of visibility. And it's interesting that different values are allowed to, to play out in those areas. Thanks. And Chinook, you did a lot of work in the last question, so you're sort of exempted from civic duty unless you wish to come in. Well, I would only say that the reason why that is is that the uh, criminal trial in sexual offences is actually um, oriented towards favouring men, Um, you know, from um, historical experiences, uh, which is why, um, you know, the offender sometimes uh, can be protected from public disclosure is the reason why you have an honest uh, defense belief that as long as you believe that you're consenting, that's fine. And it's the reason why the victims are actually the persons on trial. Uh, But if you look to international criminal law and international practice, uh, at least those things are reversed. Um, You know, the accused are there out in public. Um, There's no defense of honest belief uh, anymore. And the victim does not actually have to feel that she's a victim in court, being badgered in in cross-examination or being humiliated. 
so there's a change, but I think that that change has to come to national legal systems as well. Very interesting, because in fact the international criminal laws had the advantage of being able to work from a fresh position, not having history behind it. Uh, people will know, apropos the first remark Chiloka made, this very controversial case under the Human Rights Act, where uh, men as accused were able to lead evidence of previous sexual relations with complainants, which was devastating in its prejudicial impact, and uh, legislation attempted to avoid that. But then human rights law came in as the right to a fair trial, and it kind of reconfigured it to allow such evidence. And this was taken by some as evidence of the structural propensity to support the man, which is sort of Chiloka's point. We have a number of people in the room with, who have views. We have two men with their hands up. And we, we're going to, I'm going to ask you for your opinion in a minute, so stop looking around. We're going to get your opinion. You're going to have to get off the fence. Where's the first chap was here? Where is he? There you are. And then we have another gentleman up here on this point. So we might begin to get a microphone to this chap here if we have two. Okay, we wait for the second, but I'll come to you for the second question. Is this on this point, sir? Uh, no, no, it's not. An entirely separate question. <laughs> All right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the two of you in reserve. Does anybody have a point of view? We have a lady whom I, of course, know, Helen Rees, whom I was tempting to speak in a moment uh, on this. Helen, could you come in on this and, and uh, a colleague of ours here at LSE Law? And, sir, we will remember you two for your questions, and then we'll go to Twitter. Yeah, um... Back to the question, I mean, I very much agree with what Peter was saying about this. I think that um, anonymity is, is absolutely wrong. Um, and I think it's wrong, really, um, on two levels. I think it's wrong in principle because of the points that people were making so eloquently about open justice. And I think it's also wrong for very pragmatic reasons. And I think there are lots of those, but perhaps the one that's often cited is, you know, other witnesses may come forward when they hear the name. So I think it's absolutely wrong. But then you get to the kind of the, the real sort of knot in the middle of this. The problem is how do you then resolve um, the, you know, the points that, that you were making that um, somebody may end up with their reputation in tatters and you know, uh, their life um, and occupation ruined and so on um, by the accusation itself. And I think, I think the way through this knot is very, very difficult. But I think what we really have to do here is reaffirm the presumption of innocence and really stand up for the presumption of innocence. And we have to say, both in the courtroom and in sort of public discourse, we have to say, well, it is an accusation. It's not proved. If you are found not guilty, there should not be a stain on that man's character. And so anonymity really, in a way, undercuts that. And that's very, very hard to do. And I think we're seeing um, more and more um, in public discourse the undermining of the presumption of innocence. You know, well, there's no smoke without fire. Um, you know, if you go on Twitter, you can see kind of the worst sort of excesses of that. If it's been said, it must be true. And I think, really, that's another reason that I would very much oppose granting anonymity, even though it may help in the individual cases, it actually goes further in undermining what we, we really should be defending, which is the presumption of innocence. Somebody is innocent until they have been proven guilty in a right. court of law. So I'm very much against Thanks, anonymity. Thanks, Ellen, very much. I'm going to go to you. Uh, the microphone's coming. You have seconds to decide. <laughs> you are in charge of the country. <laughs> You have one bill. It's on this, yes or no, to anonymity for men accused of serious sexual offences. Um, 
I agree with the lady who just um, spoke on this. Um, I don't agree they should be given, um, they should be stayed anonymous. Okay. Thank you. Very succinct. Excellent. Bradley, should we take a tweet and then go to the gentleman who've already caught my eye? We've had a few come in. If you are tweeting and not using the hashtag slap on the wrists, uh, but if you could start using uh, hashtag LSE law, that'd be fantastic. Uh, that seemed mildly aggressive. <laughs> I do apologise. I'm sorry. Hashtag uh, impatient Bradley. Let's go with... Uh, do you feel that... Uh, well, let's stick with the, the, kind of the concept of, of, of trials that we've been talking about. Do you feel that trials are degradation ceremonies, as stated by Carlin, or is it just part of our adversarial system? Uh, uh, Dave Lee Travis would say degradation, wouldn't he? <laughs> Quickly on this one. Uh, uh, there's bound to be an element, isn't there? They are, um, they are a contest, uh, and in a contest you're going to try and win... Uh, and uh, tactics, then you'll use whatever tactics you... And if you're any good as a lawyer, as a practitioner, uh, you will want to win. Uh, I think the, I've worked with a few very good practitioners. They taught me how I didn't want to be a practitioner because they were completely... All women, I might add, before we get into any gender specifics, <laughs> they were completely obsessed with not losing... Uh, particularly to the Home Office in the area I practised in. Uh, and uh, so that's very important, and so that kind of thing will happen. It's the judge's job to make sure that it doesn't happen. And uh, if it's the case that judges are not doing that, they should be. Good. Thank you. Julia, on this, anything? I think it's difficult. Once you've set it up as an adversarial system, it is going to, it is going to, it is going to break out, as Peter said. I think the, the issues have been, you know, we've seen issues where, you know, in, in um, accusations of sexual abuse where you have had witnesses, the interrogation of witnesses has um, been, been something we seem to have shocked, you know, the public into the degree that it went. I think, actually, in, there are certain cases where the judge just has to really, really have a really strong hand on case management. And, yes, the lawyer may want to go uh, all hell for leather, and quite right, that's what they have to do. They have to protect their client. They have to act on uh, behalf of their client um, to the full degree of their abilities, and all, that is all part of upholding the rule of law, uh, in fact. But at the same time, um, you know, very close um, management, trial management by, by the judge to make sure that things um, stay fair. Thanks, Judy. And quickly, Chiloka and uh, Emily. Very briefly, um, I agree with what's been said about the role of the judge and being critical here in, in making sure it happens fairly. But the other thing that I think is really interesting in terms of how, how the trial is perceived is court architecture. Um, because this goes to Helen's point about the presumption of innocence. Because in lots of modern courtrooms, the defendant is effectively in a cage. You know, they're isolated, they're behind glass. And, and although they do benefit from the presumption of innocence, they look pretty guilty. We've had to separate them off and put all this screen around them and make them apart. So I think, um, I think there's a lot of really interesting... Um, Interesting things being done about the symbolism of how we, how the, what the courtroom looks like in terms of um, in terms of the presumption of innocence. But obviously, it's the judge's the job of the judge to try to make this work. Should I any view on this? Um, I'll just say that I agree with what has been said. Yeah. The adversarial system being quite um, gladiatorial in some respects, but. Again, if we look to international criminal tribunals, there we find that they are less coercive than domestic courts, and they actually regulate the way in which uh, the lawyers cross-examine. And if anything, if you watch the trial of uh, Slobodan Milosevic, and um, it became, uh, I think, a tug of war between him 
uh, and the UK judge was presiding. And in the event Slobodan Milosevic died, um, I think from a heart attack, the judge subsequently also died. So they actually do take a toll um, on the individuals who are involved. I'm not sure we want to promote a system of justice which never ends until the judge and the accused have died. Uh, we're going to take this gentleman now, which is a new question, and we have a gentleman in reserve up here, so we've got a couple more for the panel. Sir? Um, my question was to the uh, gentleman on the far right, on my far right. Um, regarding the recent case of uh, Mazen Beg, who was arrested, um, he's a rights campaigner for an organization called Cage Prisoners. Um, he was arrested under something called Section 7, I believe, and he went to court, I think, last week, or this week, early this week, and the two arguments against him um, for holding him in, uh, in custody, or I think he might be in jail right now, were that he supplied training or fitness training to one person in, the, in a refugee camp, and he supplied a generator. And that was the case against him under uh, a section of terrorism law. Um, my point is that has terrorism law been watered down so much so that uh, certain sections of the society can be labelled as you know, terrorists or potential terrorists or all this sort of thing. So on the back of the point of innocent to proven guilty, or well, to be proved as someone guilty, there has to be something quite definitive. Yeah. Whereas what I've seen or read about terrorism law is that it's been watered down so much that um, rights people or who go to Syria don't have to do much to be accused. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I mean, we'll bring Peter in immediately, but uh, I think colleagues may want to intervene as well, because Mozambique many of you may have seen him. He spoke here, I chaired it, an amnesty, LSE amnesty panel recently, 200 people in a packed room, and he spoke extraordinarily eloquently about his experiences in Guantanamo. And uh, it is extremely, if I may say so from the floor, as somebody who chaired this man and has known him for years, disturbing that he should not be arrested and charged. But I don't know the facts. This is the difficulty we all encounter in in intervening with any decisiveness on the facts, but it's extremely disturbing that this should have happened. But, Peter, the question was directed to you, and you may want to elaborate well, I mean, an answer. I don't know the details of the facts, uh, but it's certainly the case that uh, if you supply generators uh, to people who are in some way associated, in any way associated with those people fighting to overthrow the Syrian government, then he looks in the frame for um, terrorism offences. Uh, and... Uh, uh, that would be in the frame for terrorism offences for people fighting against a government which the British government is completely hostile to. Uh, so the, it, it, that's way, way too broad a definition of terrorism. And uh, I mean, even the House of Lords has come, or the Supreme Court sometimes has commented on the, on the, the fact that the definition of terrorism is too broad. Uh, it's far too broad. Uh, it means that uh, anybody involved in any uh, attempt to, or any resistance to any government anywhere in the world, whatever the nature of the government, uh, is liable for terrorism offences, uh, unless they're wearing uh, a British uniform. Uh, and so, um, uh, and maybe even if they're wearing a British uniform, I, actually I don't know the detail of the statute, if there's any exception. No. Uh, so, uh, you know, if they're in some way involved, uh, the, the SAS men undercover doing their thing, I don't know, against some dictatorship, I don't know what they might be doing. Presumably they're committing the offence as well. It's absurdly broad. And so, so uh, and I suppose to, to, to link back to, um, to Connor's point, uh, that creates a discretionary capacity for the authorities to pick and choose 
uh, who it's in the public interest uh, to prosecute because it's, there are so many possible people uh, available. But lastly, I was interested in one of the, the way you put it, which was to say, doesn't this thin the, uh, the definition of terrorism? And in the long run, I think that's an interesting thing to watch, is that... Uh, Terrorism's carried a tremendous moral force, or a tremendous political force, as a term uh, for the past uh, since the Second World War, at least. Uh, and this uh, uh, over-broadening of what it is to be a terrorist. We should think of David Miranda as well, uh, the uh, boyfriend of uh, Glenn Greenwald, stopped uh, at Heathrow uh, uh, under a power of the police to uh, uh, to work out whether he was a terrorist or not, or appeared to be a terrorist, uh, when they knew absolutely what he was doing. Uh, he was doing journalistic work, and our own courts have thrown out his appeal. So the, it's very, very broad, but as you say, it's very, very thin, and, and that's a disturbing tendency because we have this uh, extremely uh, uh, forceful label uh, which we are sucking the life out of. Perhaps, Connie, you think that was a good thing? I'm not sure. No, I mean, I, I think it's empowering prosecutors... And the case that Peter refers to is a case called Oren Gull, G-U-L, Supreme Court case, very disturbing indeed. Queen Mary law student, I mean one of, as it were, us, who's just been released from jail after a long period of incarceration with the most swinging uh, conditions on his release, which he challenged unsuccessfully under human rights law. And it gives the power to the DPP, our prosecutors, because this definition is so wide, it's up to them whether to mobilise. So if you have a feeling, go back to, your, uh, to Mr. Begg, you, you, we're, we're all, as it were, running... Uh, anybody who's involved in politics, anybody who's involved in something that's a bit tricky, a bit dodgy, or Syria in, or Syria out, <laughs> is Iran in, is Iran out, we're always at risk, but nothing, no, no decision gets made to go for us. But if a decision gets made to go for us, my goodness, we're vulnerable. So many people are vulnerable. That's what the Orange Gold case and the Miranda case show us, which is about the breadth of law, and the judges are not as well-equipped as you'd imagine to be able to protect us from the breadth of law. In the Miranda case, the schedule had subject the schedule grew out of controls on Irish people coming into Britain who were thought to be terrorists. And the entry into Britain is always an easier space to control than Britain. So there's been traditionally port powers which are greater than ordinary mainland powers. The power was dis- was, was subjective. So it was quite difficult for the judges to read into it some requirement for reasonable cause. And therefore, neither is necessarily wrong, and that's disturbing. Chiloka, there's no international definition of terrorism. At least there hasn't been one that's no. been agreed. No, so you can not. produce your usual answer, which is, <laughs> if only people followed international law, everything will be fine. <laughs> Though all the judges would, of course, be dead. That's true. <laughs> yeah, well, terrorism is one of those... Um, Subjects that within international law is actually uh, quite difficult to come to grips because there are quite a good number of international treaties and conventions that deal uh, with terrorism. Um, but I think that uh, quite tellingly, uh, after 9-11, um, Security Council Resolution 1373 um, tried to get to grips with uh, terrorism we saw regional efforts to define terrorism within the European Union, within the African Union, and the inter-American system. They're all regional conventions which have various elements uh, of actually uh, how terrorism is defined. But having said that, um, you know, it's still a subject that's not fairly coherent in the way in which it's treated. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Julia, Emily? I concur, or I dissent, we'll never know. Uh, Gentleman's had his hand up with tremendous consistency for quite some time. 
Thank you. Uh, Ross McLeod, just to finish off on that last question, um, I've suggested Noam Chomsky's definition of terrorism is a useful one. He said, uh, terrorism is anything that they do to us. Anything we do to them is a legitimate act of policy. I was an army officer for 12 years until January. The things we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, how we not lived in uniform, would absolutely conform to Section 1 of the Terrorism Act 2000. It's politics. Um, my question, though, links on from the previous one about rape. Monday saw the uh, release of an excoriating coroner's inquest verdict into the suicide of Anne-Marie Element, who had alleged rape and then was, in the coroner's verdict, effectively hounded to her death. This follows 25 years of allegations of abuse within the army. <coughs> the army is effectively unregulated. There's no independent oversight, no access, virtually no access, to employment tribunals, no unions or federation. Liberty and others have launched a campaign that they've revived those who are members, if you're not joined, um, today to impose an ombudsman to provide independent external oversight over the army, as is the case in about 30 other countries. My question is twofold. This is a niche area, and the MOD is ferociously effective, whatever else you think of it, of uh, lobbying. What do you, the panel, regard as, first, Parliament's level of interest and willingness to change the law to impose independent oversight? And secondly, how can Liberty and other groups influence legislative change? Thank you. Uh, Ross, I'm I'm going to abuse the chair, if I may, because as well as working here, I'm a barrister, and I've had quite a lot of cases under what was the War Pensions Act 1943. And it was a system whereby pensions could be secured on the basis of disability. And one of the most prominent aspects of the disabilities of my clients, which were regularly denied by the Department of Defense, which necessitated litigation, on which more in a moment, was post-traumatic stress disorder and various types of stress disorders related, I regret to say, as often to bullying within the service as maltreatment by the supposed enemy outside the service. And there was a capacity in that act, in a schedule, for applications to be taken on a point of law to the High Court directly, where nominated judges dealt with it, and there was a guarantee of legal aid. That was a residue of a time when it was felt that soldiers required such special treatment, and that law has been abolished. And the procedures have been assimilated into a system of tribunal oversight, which is far less effective in giving such men and women an opportunity to secure some kind of compensation for their treatment during their training or directly after. And among the most heartbreaking of the cases with which I've dealt have been men and women whose lives have been effectively destroyed by shocking treatment by their own forces. Uh, The fact that this law was removed was an indication of the interest that Parliament took in it. And I regret to say, making a sort of general observation, this country seems addicted to the idea that its military are part of its main identity and extremely anxious about any close scrutiny of the military's treatment of its own people, almost as though the country can't face that reality. And an interesting recent example is not only the shocking inquest verdict with a brilliant decision by the judge that you've referred to, but also European Court of Human Rights cases, which have insisted on inquiries where individuals who have joined the army find themselves dead as a result of deficiencies in training or deficiencies in provision. And when the European Court of Human Rights said that this was something that needed to be looked at, 
quite higher level people in the Department of Defence and their friends said, in the immortal words of one of them on the radio, this will make war impossible. (laughs) What would make war impossible was not treating our own people as fodder. So there is a hugely deep issue here as to what can be done. I think this notion of a strong advice not to join is, I have to say, one that I would share. I, I don't care for the presentation of the army as essentially the Samaritans with a tiny little pistol in their holder, uh, which is how they present themselves to the world at large. And we need to counter that image until there's been a serious effort to reform from within a culture about which we as a a culture are in denial. That's my view. Makes sense. The obvious central gravity is it's recruiting. You can hit the recruiting by its reputation. We need to hear it a little bit because it's very important. I was just saying, the, uh, you're right, the army's lifeblood is its recruiting, and that's affected through its recruitment, and that's via the media. The media will follow what the uh, contemporary uh, narrative is, and it's parliament with whom the power lies ultimately to make changes. But yes, you're right in terms of uh, pressure points. In terms of parliament, though, what, and the law, what's well, your perception? Well, there, are challenge, there are judicial reviews going against the army in May this year on Article 6 breaches and various other things, but there's a very high level of deference in the establishment toward the military. The sort of where we, they are a version of the, arm, the Red Cross with guns is the basis under which I joined. I resigned having decided this was not the version of the army that actually I thought yeah. I was joining at Sandhurst uh, last year. I, I think uh, the panel may have enough views on that. I would like to slightly broaden it because they've all had experience in trying to achieve change via the political process and the legislative process. And you can either address the particular on which you may not have a view, but the, the general question lurking under the particular is how you achieve change through the legislative process. Peter, do you want to come in and start on this excellent point that's been raised by Ross? Well, well at a very general, at a very general level, because I, I, I don't have any direct expertise, but at a very general level, I wouldn't be too pessimistic. I mean, Connor's experience in the in the litigation is is perhaps a pessimistic one because the uh, 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 the. Ministry of Defence uh, is fighting uh, what I suspect is a rearguard action. It would seem to me that uh, these times have changed and that there is a, uh, a conflict between being the Red Cross with guns and being the British Army, uh, that those are not the same things. The British Army's traditions and its structures and its ways of doing things were built uh, out of conquering other countries by the use of force. Uh, and for that, legal rights are not very helpful uh, of civil or criminal nature. What you need is people who are brutalised, people who are violent, uh, and people who will obey orders and will fight hard uh, when they're in high-risk situations. And the British Army produced, produced such uh, uh, men, primarily, in large numbers, and was a very, has been historically a very effective uh, fighting force. So, I, in, funnily enough, I have some factual sympathy with the general. I think he may well be right. You know, that, uh, that if you want to go out and kill people, you need a highly disciplined force of killers to do it. Uh, so, uh, and that, I don't think there's the taste for that in Britain anymore. I th- it's clear there's no taste in the West to go f- to war with Russia over Ukraine. Vladimir Putin knows it. Uh, and uh, that's because our societies have changed in that respect. So my broad point would be, uh, if you want to achieve this, I-, I think if you're imaginative and you press the right buttons, uh, you could. Um, that would be my broad point in that question. Do you want to come in on this? 
Uh, just on, on the broader point of, of achieving change, you know, politicians are um, remarkably sensitive to some aspects of public opinion, uh, particularly as expressed in some newspapers. And so getting some key editors on side um, and raising public opinion and, and you know, raising public awareness in that sense. Um, you know, for a political calculation, is it worth it? Is it worth going for? There's a very kind of crude cost-benefit analysis of, you know, what kind of, whose votes am I going to get from this? And am I going to get the votes of my key constituents uh, who I'm seeking to gain? So building, building political alliances uh, across the spectrum. And it may be that you get alliances of Baptists and bootleggers, as it were. So people who, um, so the Baptists and bootleggers come from those who were opposing the end of um, prohibition in the US in the 1920s. So you had the Baptists on one side who opposed the end of prohibition because they didn't want anybody to drink, and you had the bootleggers on the other side who didn't want the thing made legal because they were making far too many profits out of being illegal. Um, so you can have, you know, you can build alliances, and the only way really to get political mobilization is is strategic alliance building with, with elite players who know how to push the buttons that you want to push. Thanks, Julia. Uh, Emily? Just very briefly, I, I, um, I agree with um, what you said, with what Connor said, and I think with what Julia said about the important thing is building up a kind of head of steam about the extraordinary, extraordinary uh, fact that the state as effectively the employer... Uh, abdicates its duty of care for its employees in large measure. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. And if one can't build up a head of steam about that, it would seem a great pity. Uh, so it is about the fact that some MPs with very small majorities are vulnerable on issues that uh, uh, matter to public opinion, and they do care about it. Um, and MPs with unpopular views have been voted out. So I think I wouldn't be entirely um, pessimistic, but um, I, I, I take your point that the recent history is not edifying. Thanks. Angeloka? Um Just two brief points. Sometimes change can be engineered from outside, and in this case, I think the European Court of Human Rights, uh, as Conor Getty indicated, has been a huge um, sort of advocate uh, that has led to change in bringing militaries to account uh, you know, for activities done during war outside the country uh, to which they belong. Um, and I think this has changed the attitude of, of the military uh, to make sure that they're actually human rights compatible and sensitivity. Uh, and I recall when this happened, military advisors came to the LSE uh, from the US, from the UK, from Canada, to learn international human rights law because they knew that the implications for the soldiers uh, and they needed to know exactly what international human rights law uh, did say uh, on the subject. The second aspect is perhaps to speak to the military directly as well. Um, They may have a certain profile and mentality, but whenever I've gone on mission and I've asked to speak to the commanders, and they say, you're the only person who actually asked to speak to us directly. Everyone visits, they talk about the military, they condemn us, but they don't hear our viewpoint. Um, and you find that at a personal level, they're actually very uh, understanding, and you can discuss issues with them. Um, whether or not they lead to huge changes is obviously uh, another matter. Um, and then the point ties on to what has been said about public opinion and MPs. Um, and I think trying to build cross-party kind of consensus in introducing legislative change uh, is a huge point in addition to anything else. Here's a scary thought. We used to need to brutalize people in order to get them to kill for us because killing for us was dreadful, requiring close encounters with persons you were trying to kill, and that's no longer necessary. 
So the dystopian future would be that we actually resolve all of this and we become immensely civil and our soldiers wear suits and at the end of their training, which is on a computer, they go upstairs to the current soldiers who are also wearing suits and they're the apprentice and they check how you kill a chap without ever meeting him. And so you tick the box, human rights compatible, and you do the killing. And we have a military in which there is no bullying. The military resembles a community like yourself, and we have perfect compatibility with human rights. That's the dystopian future that we're beginning to see with the development of uh, kind of remote killing. Uh, and it's, it's very, very scary. This lady has a comment on this, or are you trying to jump in with another question, not to be aggressive? You're my roving commentator on events as we discuss them. Away you go. Um, I just want, like, given that the military is not like any other profession because you are training and you're teaching people how to kill others, how appropriate do you think it is that the military advertises joining the military on TV in a very kind of, you know, action movie way? And in a way that's much more relevant to us, and I think, you know, maybe needs to be discussed, how appropriate is it that the army comes to the LSE campus to recruit? Yeah, I mean, are you slightly implying that you'd rather like to lead a campaign to stop them coming onto campus? Because this is where you give your view. Possibly, because I've read a little bit about it, and it hadn't occurred to me. Like, I read in a different... Someone else at a different university raised this in their student paper about the fact that it's too political to have the military come to campus and try and recruit students that are very impressionable, given that it's not exactly the same profession, like mm -hmm. it's not like in any, any other profession. So I'm not sure what my views are, that's why right. I'm asking you. I, I'm not going to put the pro-director of research on the, on the spot here about whether the school's going to develop a new policy. Ross has his hand up still. Ross, we might come to you, but we might not. Are there other people who comment on this military? Am I overstating it? Other people who want to stand up for the army, who think it's a vital part of what we are, and we're exaggerating it. Ross, would you would you kick them off the campus? I would have done pre nineteen ninety nine when we had the completely unjustified and homophobic ban on gays joining the military. Yeah. However, now I would suggest that there is a role for a military in a society. At the risk of sounding un-British, I was proud to serve in Bosnia, where we stopped a genocide. Uh, I was a small part of a far larger machine which stopped the, uh, the deliberate um, d destruction, rape, torture, murder of an entire national, ethnic, racial and religious groups. So there is a proper place for a military in a society firmly under democratic control, firmly both within the military, how it operates within itself, and we are not a safe organisation at present, uh, to our own people and more broadly at the strategic level on what operations it's deployed, Iraq and Afghanistan being examples. So, no, I wouldn't, but I would have done it in the past. There's yeah. a place for military, but it has to be properly controlled. Excellent. That's very helpful intervention, very helpful intervention. Now, I didn't tell you this earlier because I thought you'd all leave, but there is an opportunity to have a glass of wine at the end of this. And the glass of wine is fairly proximate. That's why I didn't tell you, because you will find the glass of wine by leaving. Now, you're not all to leave. <laughs> It may not yet be there, but it's coming. It may even be in the lift as we speak. This is all very exciting. So I, I don't want uh, to deprive you of the wine unnecessarily, but I don't want to close down the discussion unreasonably early. And we have all these people who've been tweeting, and Bradley, obviously, who's, who needs to be more prominent than he has been tonight, uh, is obviously keen to ask another tweet question. We're going to get another tweet question, and then we're going to see whether there is another question, and we may at that point be beginning to wrap up, just to give you advance notice, in the next five or ten minutes or so. But let's see how the questions go. Bradley. 
Should the state in the form of law ever intervene in the individual's right to choose when and how to die? Right. The law intervening on when and how to die. I think, Emily, it's unavoidably one with which you start. God, this is a really big and complicated, uh, really big and really complicated question. Um, uh, in some ways, the state doesn't, in the sense that there's, um, if somebody has made a conscious decision that they want to end their life, the state doesn't necessarily come in and stop them, um, that suicide is no longer a criminal offence in this country. I think the question might be getting at actually whether or not the state should um, help allow people to be helped um, to die, um, rather than just not putting the, the, uh, an obstacle in the way of somebody who's determined to do this for themselves. And I think this is really, really hard. And it's hard because um, my, my personal view would be that there would be very, very great um, advantages to thinking about uh, how you could allow for some uh, compassionate assistance at the end of life when somebody has, is absolutely certain, without any doubt, that they can't go on anymore and that the relief of their suffering requires that their life comes to an end. So I think as a starting point, I think it's worth thinking about how that would work in practice. In reality, it's very difficult to design um, uh, a legal regulation uh, that would satisfy all of our anxieties about going down that route. Um, So just as as an example, um, you could say, well, yes, we should allow doctors um, to kill patients when the patient's suffering is unbearable. But, of course, what does that mean? Uh, How do we know that the patient's suffering is unbearable? Because I think we've all probably been in the situation of feeling desperate one day and and okay subsequently. So how can you be sure that the suffering is permanently uh, intolerable? Um, I think the the way I... there's two things that I think um, are possibly worth, worth mentioning. One is that if one was going to go down the route of allowing people to have more control in the sense of, of, of having some sort of assistance in order to have a comfortable and dignified death, because, of course, one of the asides is when people do this to themselves, uh, one of the only ways to make sure that you're going to do it effectively is to do it in a very brutal, violent way in which somebody might find you. So if we're going to allow assistance for a death to be comfortable, and, and dignified, um, we, we really need to make sure that we're, that's the last possible option on whatever palliative menu you have. It should never be the first. If somebody asks their doctor for um, help, assistance in dying, the doctor shouldn't say, right, off we go, that's what, what's going to happen. The doctor should try to understand what reasons are prompting that request. What is it that they're finding unbearable? Is it pain? Um, is it even something like loneliness that um, is, 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 is currently making their life very difficult? So I think the only sort of circumstance in which one should do this is, to, is for it to be, if it was ever to be allowed, to very much be a last resort when you have tried everything else and there isn't anything uh, that you can do that this person's mind is made up. The, the other thing that I think is, is really important in, in relation to, to these, these debates is, is the thing that's very critical from a lot, of the, um, a lot of the data that is gathered on this is that more people are reassured by the idea that this would be an option than would ever use it. 
So one of the things I think we, we have is a lot of people being very, very fearful about, about dying and very fearful about what's going to happen to them. Um, and the way in which people talk about this in countries where it's lawful is very much as a, a comfort blanket. Not that it's ever actually something that you do, but that it's reassuring for people and it enables them to bear the current horrors of whatever they're going through in relation to treatment, that they know they could say, I've had enough. So um, I think it's worth thinking about it very much as a last resort and very much as comfort for somebody who is, is fearful rather than being a first port of call or something that we should be uh, enthusiastic about. What about, about? Uh, Emily, I don't know if this has been reported accurately, Belgium, which appears to have either enacted or proposed a law which would allow children, as they are described, or baby young adults, of full capacity to agree to the uh, ending of their lives brought about by another. First of all, is, is that reported accurately? And secondly, if it is, do you have a view on that? Yes, um, it is reported accurately. And I think, I think, I think the, the way to think about this is, um, is really to say... There are decisions that we allow children to take, uh, which are decisions for death, in a sense, that if you have a 15-year-old who is absolutely sure that they've had enough and they don't want any more chemotherapy, um, that they uh, know that their condition is, is hopeless... Um, we're not going to pin them down and pump poison into them. So there are contexts in which we would allow children to make decisions that they've had enough uh, of invasive uh, and horrible treatment. Um, so if we think children can sometimes have the capacity to make those sorts of decisions, and obviously the bar is quite high here, but there are circumstances in which children um, can and do say they've had enough. Is there something qualitatively different about asking not for somebody to stop treating you, but some, for somebody to do something different to bring your life to the end? Because the outcome is the same. These are decisions where the outcome will be death. So I think, um, I think it's a sort of more general point, which is that when we, when, we make, um, when we say that you should or you shouldn't be allowed to do this in relation to assisted dying, we should also think about the decisions we allow people to take, which are decisions to demand that a doctor refrains from doing something, with the inevitable outcome that they will die. Thanks. I think it's something the panel might well have a view on. Uh, Julia, to start with you, and then and then Chiloka, and then Peter, or not, as the case may be. I, I mean, I think, as Emily said, this is an incredibly fraught area, um, and it's one which you know emotions obviously run run high uh, on both sides. And the um, I completely agree with with what Emily said. This is this is a, this is really a very much a last resort. Um, if it were to were to be allowed, very much a last resort area where you really are in the last throes of palliative care. Um, I think where um, you know the issue about whether life can really continue in a way which has an, you know a decent quality of life. Um, one has to think about the the individual's autonomy and, and ability to 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 govern their life, as it were, uh, in that way. That said, I do recognise the concerns about the uh, abuse uh, of any such right, particularly on behalf of those who are no longer capable uh, of making decisions, uh, but who may have written down uh, requests uh, at some previous stage. I'm very conscious of the, the pressures uh, or the fears that pressures that people may be put under unnecessary to pressure to, to require um, this act of... Commission, this positive act 
um, in this way. So, you know, it's an area where it's very difficult to be categorical. I would not really, I would not want to be categorical. I think it's a, an incredibly sensitive uh, and emotional issue. Thank you. Chiloka, a few others? Thank you. I, I recognize the uh, sensitivity um, of the issue and the ethics uh, around it as well. Uh, but I'm in complete agreement with um, the decision of the European Court of Human Rights in Diane Pretty versus UK when they say that the right to life does not include the right to die. Um, and I think there's something about life and the sanctity of the human person that is actually worth supporting and fighting for uh, all the way through and through. And I think that part of the problem lies in the fact that there's not adequate medical provision made by the state with regard to certain illnesses and with regard to persons of certain ages. Um, and that responsibility is then devolved to carers and family units uh, you know, who find perhaps the responsibility at some point uh, unbearable. Uh, and also the person who is in that kind of situation um, probably as a last resort, thinks that you know, their life should, should go. I also think that um, decisions will be taken by others, doctors in the absence of adequate safeguards. Uh, just in the past month alone, I think there have been three cases where doctors had left notes to not resuscitate um, you know, at the foot of a patient's bed, and the patient woke up and found that these notes were left there. Uh, which meant that effectively they had been handed down uh, a death sentence by their doctors without their consent and without anyone else um, being involved or consulted. Um, and I think that some of the ethical dilemmas around that uh, are huge. On the other hand, one could also say, from the point of view of human rights, um, someone could be in a state of inhuman and degrading existence because of the nature uh, of their illness, and if we prohibit that uh, in human rights, then perhaps human rights should also look at ways of which that should be prohibited in, in, in times of illness, which then uh, brings me to the point that Emily made that this, is, this should be a matter of last resort, but with adequate uh, safeguards and proper development, uh, I think, within law and international human rights law as well. Thanks. We have a person who wants to come in in the audience, and we have Peter briefly, and I want to say something, and I think this will be the last one, actually, but Peter. Well, uh, in general, it would be great to keep the criminal law out of as much of our lives as possible, I think. Uh, so uh, my, uh, it's, it's a very good change that, that, that we don't prosecute people for attempted suicide. The question is really whether we should prosecute people for, assisted suicide, for assisting suicide uh, or, or for euthanasia. Um, so I'm worried about... I share the concerns about the euthanasia, but the assisted, assisting suicide in terminal illness seems to me to be... Uh, uh, a humane thing to do. We live in a largely post-religious culture. Most people uh, have lost that taboo uh, on, on taking their own lives. Uh, and we return to a position where to be... I mean, the ancients would have taken their own lives not to be dishonoured. And our equivalent of that is that we should be able at least to take our own lives not to... Uh, be degraded uh, at the end of them, and uh, that seems to me to be a good thing. The counterfeit in my mind is that we live in a very pessimistic, uh, the post-religious society we live in is very pessimistic and morbid, uh, and that's a, a, a fact of it that disturbs me uh, about any kind of licensing of suicide. But where there's clear medical evidence of terminal illness, and I wouldn't leave it to a last resort, I think where there's clear medical evidence of a terminal illness, I, I don't... Uh, have, a, have, a bit, have a big problem with that and I do, there must be it cannot be beyond the wit of lawyers to come up with a procedure uh, that um, avoids uh, 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 its abuse 
we've got this lady who's going to cut my eye earlier, but just while we're waiting, uh, this is Ash Wednesday, and uh, yeah, she's coming up. Catholics will have had a bit of ash put in the forehead. Thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. And in a curious way, the religious and the thoughtful people in this share a desire to talk about death. And in a way, there is more common ground than there seems to be, because what the common enemy is, is the flight from death. Madam, you caught my eye early. Have you changed your mind? You've got a microphone. Yeah. Have you got a point of view on this? We can't allow a new question. Um, it's kind of, it's not really a new question. It's just kind of expanding on the point. Um, you were talking about assisted suicide. Should those who travel to Switzerland to assist others in suicide, do you think they should be prosecuted under UK law? Yeah, so it's a nice jurisdictional question. Did other people have a comment or observation? Did somebody else try to catch my... Madam, we've had you before, I think, so we'll give it a, we'll give it a miss uh, on this one. We have this gentleman we haven't heard from before. It's on this issue, I think. We have no time for a new issue. Yeah, I think the question we have to ask ourselves as a society is, what should be the highest goal that society, especially law, should protect? Is it um, life, as in the moment, I think, or is it freedom? Because as long as life is the highest good in our society, and I think it's good, um, and as long as we put the responsibility for our life and safety to the government, there will, won't be ever a defense or, for assisted suicide or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that addresses uh, the discussion about uh, if the right, the right to, to live include the right to die. It's the same. You know, if, you, if you can answer the question... Um, Life as high as good as society or um, freedom, then I think you will find the solution for this question. Very helpful, very helpful. One word answer across from Chiloka. Would you prosecute a person who returns from Switzerland having taken a person there to have their suicide assisted? No. Um, it would depend uh, in the sense that uh, you, can't, you, you, can't sort of, you can't promise that in all circumstances this would, but generally uh, in the cases that the DPP has decided, I think he's made the right decision. I would like just to say something about the point that was just sure, made about ahead, the right to life or, or life being the most important value. And I think obviously the right to life is incredibly important, but it's not necessarily always a duty to live. And there are cases about people refusing treatment, um, refusing treatment which they uh, find in every fibre of their body they don't want. And the law protects that right. The law protects that right because the right to say, no, stop treating me, is actually treated as more important in those cases than any duty they have to go on living when it's intolerable to them. Thank you. I I can't enforce the one-word rule, but I'm still desirous of it, Julia Peter. Not even a word. (laughs) Not even a word. I agree with Emily. Uh, I agree with Emily. And Peter... Yeah, it would depend, but uh, it's, I'm uncomfortable. The one bit I'm uncomfortable with, which is, would be a theme for me for the evening, is that we have the DPP's guidelines. They're very sensible guidelines, but it's a fudge. It's avoiding having a, a proper set of laws. And, and as ever, it's all right with the wisdom of prosecutorial discretion will save us. Well, in the terrorism cases, I'm not so sure, and uh, uh, generally we should avoid leaving it to the discretion of executive agents. This is a man who starts his answer by saying it depends and then goes on to condemn fudging. <laughs> My goodness, he's got a cheek. How many people here would vote through a law which permits in controlled circumstances proper medical safeguards, etc., uh, assisted suicides? An overwhelming majority, I think. Who wouldn't? And would that also apply to people under the age of 18 with full capacity? Would anybody change? Would, any, would people still support their initial position where it's a child or young person who would change their mind? Change their mind. 
So who would support euthanasia in that sort of situation as well? Hands up. So I think it's, it's, it's a different kind of model. It's, a, it's, it's much closer. Uh, I think we've got three minutes. So that allows quite a good round of applause. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> because I want to flag up uh, another event. The uh, LSE is also crowdsourcing a constitution. And we're having a constitutional carnival in June. And one of the reasons we did this, and one of the reasons we did prosecuting baby boomers on Friday, is we're trying to work out and experiment with new ways of communicating ideas about our culture and trying to get away from the idea that it's all boring, single person speaking, notes being taken, and so on. So I want you to keep an eye on the website. Uh, It's Constitution UK, and it's something we're doing with law and the Institute of Public Affairs crowdsourcing a UK constitution. What kind of constitution do we want? And there are other law events coming up on freedom. They're behind me. They're behind me. Uh, And the most... The one that's coming up immediately is that one behind me. So try and keep an eye on our website, LSE Law Events. Uh, Usually, I think we can... We can suggest that these are designed in a way to make them enjoyable as well as informative. I hope you found this enjoyable as well as informative. I think we should thank very much. Before we go out and have our drink, remember, don't forget, there's a drink out there, where you'll be able to ask the questions you chose not to ask and not to tweet, because we'll be around for a bit. I think we should thank Chiloka, Emily, Julia, and Peter for having done such a good talk. Thank you.